I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about municipal golf with the architect Gil Hance. This conversation took place a couple of weeks ago at the third annual National Links Trust Symposium on Municipal Golf. The NLT Symposium is basically a gathering of people who work in and advocate for municipal golf in America. And for the 2023 edition, I was very honored to serve as the MC and host a couple of the conversations on stage. As the closing event of this year's symposium, Gil Hans and I got up in front of a crowd at the Pearl Street Warehouse in Washington, D.C., and we talked about Gil's various municipal golf projects, which date back to the building of Rustic Canyon and the renovation of Soul Park, both in California. More recently, Gil designed the new park in West Palm Beach, and he's currently working on projects at Maggie Hathaway in Los Angeles, Rock Creek Park in D.C., and Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia, which, by the way, that last one, Cobbs Creek, I mistakenly forgot to ask him about. It was a really fun conversation. I was a little nervous. I'd never done anything like this before, getting up and kind of performing a conversation, but Gil is so good in these situations, and we just ended up kind of nerding out about golf like we usually do, except this time it happened to be in front of an audience. So great experience, and I really want to thank everyone at the National Links Trust for inviting me to be involved. They have a fantastic team over there, and I truly think they're going to help shape the future of golf in a very positive way. So if you ever have a chance to attend the NLT Symposium next year or the year after, you should absolutely do so. Now, before we get to my interview with Gil Hance, I want to say a few words about our sponsor for this episode, Fat Cork. Fat Cork works exclusively with small, family-run grower champagne houses to bring you the highest quality cuvées from France. So Fat Cork has created a landing page with specific packages just for fried egg listeners. This is at fatcork.com slash golf. And I want to tell you about what's on this page. So Fat Cork, the people who run Fat Cork, Brian and Abby Miletus, they are golf nerds, right? They're just, they're just like us. They're, they're sickos. These are some of the packages they're offering on that landing page. I just went to it. There is the Just a Guy champagne gift box. There is the Framework Agreement champagne bundle. There is the Toasty Tales champagne and golf gift set. If you listen to the Shotgun Start, you'll, you'll know the reference point for that one. There is a package of three champagnes called the Majors, Champions of the Year, and they refer to these as three of the greatest champagnes ever produced. There is the Big Woozy Champagne Magnum. Um, so all sorts of stuff here. In addition to the champagne, there are various other things that go into these gift boxes. There are teas with the Fat Cork logo on them. 
Uh, one of them actually comes with a head cover that was made in collaboration with Seamus Golf. So in any case, you, you get the vibe here. There are various packages on fatcork.com slash golf that are targeted at our audience specifically and will make you laugh and will also get you some very delicious champagne. So Fat Cork is offering free shipping on any of their products with the code GOLF, just simply the code GOLF. They handwrite all gift notes on nice stationery, and a human will answer your call or email. So check out Fat Cork. And with that, here is me and Gil Hance at the National Links Trust Symposium on Municipal Golf. Please welcome to the stage, Gil Hance. All right, Gil, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the focus of this conversation is municipal golf. So I want to take you back a couple of decades. This was before the Olympic course. This was before you had to tell people not to call you the open doctor, which, which I'm still resisting. You were an up-and-coming golf architect, and one of your first handful of new-build projects was at Rustic Canyon. Now, I think Rustic Canyon is one of the best municipal courses in the country. So could you tell me a little bit about how this project came about, just to get right into it? Sure. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Um, by the way, the green room is not green, in case uh, anybody is, was interested. It's more in of it. a darkish, bluish, yeah, yeah kind of. Um, yeah, actually, it was. It all came from Jeff Shackelford. Uh, Jeff had his father, Lynn, had worked for American Golf, and then he had partnered up with Craig Price on a few projects. And so Craig was looking at bidding uh, for Ventura County to get to do Rustic Canyon, and so he talked to Lynn Shackelford. Jeff then talked to us because I had done the sketches for his book, Grounds for Golf. So Jeff and I had become friends at that point in time. And it's really just one introduction after another. And I know at the time they had talked to uh, uh, several sort of bigger name architects. And they said the, f the site was too flat. It was too flat for good golf. wasn't interesting. Et cetera. And we kept hearing this over and over again. And you know, the more we walked around out there, the more we realized that it was flat if you weren't really looking, but it was seriously tilted. I mean, from the high end to the low end was well over 150 feet. So there was tons of elevation change. The little dry wash that ran through the middle presented tons of opportunities. Jeff being uh, George Thomas's biographer and intimately knowledgeable about Riviera, Bel Air, not so much LACC at that point in time, but he had these concepts of let's build these Thomas Holes, and we've got the Barranca and the opportunity to do that. And so we were eventually selected for the job and, you know, said to it, as you said, we were, there was maybe one or two projects we were working on at the time, so we spent a lot of time on site. Um, it was a dusty, dirty uh, site because, you know, it doesn't rain in, in California very often, and so it was just, but it was a, a fun site. We had the freedom and the opportunity and the ability to build golf holes that we thought were interesting and special. And I think that was one of the best lessons of that project was we've never set out to dumb down our golf courses because they're public. We've never set out to say, well, it's going to be the average golfer, a municipal golfer is going to play here, so let's just give them the vanilla version. Thought 
why should we do that? We should still build the golf course to the best of our ability, put the most interest we can into it, and really design it to the standard, whether it was private or public, try and create some things. You know, we, we've worked really hard on width out there. We had the opportunity to build wide corridors to create options. You know, width for width's sake isn't that interesting, but when you have width and it, and it gives you options and gives you better angles and different ways to play these golf holes, um, I think that, that that's, it, it made a lot of sense early on. It was probably the biggest site we had gotten our hands on. And then it was also you know, the site of our biggest uh, pop culture phenomenon in that uh, those, any Entourage fans out there? All right, so one of the episodes, uh, they were talking about going to play golf, and, and they asked Johnny Drama, he said, where are you going to play golf? And he said, Rustic Canyon, the best public golf course in Southern California. So I had that for my ringtone for a little while. <laughs> but no, it was an amazing opportunity. You know, Jeff was such a great person to partner with on that. You know, Jim and I would be stuck into the machinery and work. And then people say, well, what did Jeff do? And I said, yeah, he is actually was like a hole ahead. He was walking and looking because he didn't really want to work on equipment. And he didn't want to work with a shovel. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's a writer. Like, he is a writer, you know, yeah, exactly. He didn't want to dam damage his hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, he was Delicate. a hole ahead looking and thinking and brainstorming so that when Jim and I finished a hole, we went over and it was like, okay, instead of going, now what do we do? It was like, hey, what about this? And I think it fueled a ton of, of great ideas and a lot of great energy out on the site. I didn't know that story about Entourage. Is Rustic Canyon really a Johnny drama kind of course, I wonder? I think so. I mean, it's one of those places we get, you know, I run into people here and there, obviously, and and I get so many comments about Rustic Canyon. Soul Park is another one. And then the strangest one of all is Suwannee, you know, University of the South. We did a little nine-hole makeover there, and the people who go to that school love that school. They're like so attached to their school and so proud of it. And I'll just run, people say, did, you did Swanee, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, that was not, you know, in the pantheon of courses that you, you mentioned, it doesn't get mentioned very often, but, you know, Rustic Canyon, Soul Park, and, and Swanee are ones that people come up and say, thanks for doing that. If you go out to Sweetens Cove, you should go up to Swanee. It's uh, not, not much. If you go that far, you can go a little bit farther. So with the Rustic Canyon project, we've talked a lot this week during this symposium about methods of building and what the best practices for that are. The theme of the symposium was in-house and large-scale projects, and we, we learned about a number of different approaches to that. For the Rustic Canyon project, this was really a, a design-build effort, wouldn't you say? It was. We had a project manager. We had basically hired the own, our own crew in-house. I think when we figured we tallied it all up, we moved 17,000 cubic yards of dirt, and it was basically with a, a front-end loader and a, and a pickup. Could you compare that to like give people an idea of how little that is? Yeah, I mean, it's minuscule. It's, it's barely even shaping. Uh, you know, we've, we just did a, a golf course in Palm Springs where we moved 2 million cubic yards of dirt. So, I mean, you can, in comparison, that was the most. Uh, Rustic Canyon was definitely the least. And, and so it was just, yeah, it was a small crew. Uh, some of them had golf experience, some of them didn't. We had an irrigation contractor, but it was sort of every day you show up and there were 15 guys out there and today you're going to drive this piece of equipment, today you're going to do this. And because it was, in essence, very minimal uh, earth moving and the shaping was really all we did, uh, it, you know, the, the holes came together pretty quickly. And part of that minimal approach 
and if I can use the term minimalism, it seems like it's a little bit out of fashion. It was uh, a little bit more in fashion and a little more cutting edge feeling when you did the Rustic Canyon project. I, I believe this really is a minimalist project, but it was minimalist for a reason, right? I mean, there were a lot of environmental sensitivities around this site. And so, you know, can you talk about how your approach to your philosophy of architecture fit with this kind of project? Yeah, I think early on, having worked for Tom Doak for, for four years, you know, he was the first architect to be associated with minimalism. You know, Bill and Ben were, were doing golf courses that were considered minimalist. Tom was the one, I think, who sort of introduced that into the, you know, the phraseology the, the of, of lexicon. golf. The lexicon. Yeah, of, yeah, he, he of wrote golf. a minimalist manifesto. It was, a, it was a whole thing. Yeah. So I think having been exposed to that and having had all those conversations with Tom about how you build minimalist golf courses we set out at Rustic Canyon with what we thought was a really good piece of ground and didn't want to mess with it. I mean, I think all architects look at pieces of ground and they try to maximize the potential for them. Some architects see potential in a two-foot contour through the middle of a fairway. Some architects don't, they miss that. Some architects see the potential in a dry wash. Some architects look at that as an environmental nightmare to have to deal with. So I think what we looked at is how do we maximize all the potential positives in that property before we revert to moving dirt? You know, if you can maximize all the potential, I think there we were probably more patient. Uh, having Jeff out in front identifying these things really I think lent itself to us being more minimalist on that site than we might have otherwise been. So I think all the stars were aligned. It was a very low budget project. Um, so that also helped to keep the, uh, the aspirations of moving a lot of dirt down. So I think all of those things coming together on that particular site lent themselves to, to that minimalist build. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rustic Canyon was your first experience being an architect on a municipal project. Yes. Right? Yep. And so how, how was it different working within that system as opposed to working with a green committee or with a particular client? Did it introduce any more complexities into the equation that you then had to negotiate? Not really, because uh, Craig Price was the, he, he had gotten the lease from the county. So once we were approved and he was approved as the leaseholder, we didn't really have to deal with the county very much. And I think, um, I don't know how to say this without saying it, uh, you know, California is not easy <laughs> to get stuff done. And I think the county, Ventura County helped us dramatically to get things through and to get, and move them through in a more timely fashion than what have, might have been the normal time frame in, in Southern California. So I think they were, they aided us dramatically in getting it started. But once we started, very little input. So Rustic Canyon is owned by Ventura County. Another Ventura County property is Soul Park. A few years after Rustic Canyon, and there is a connection here involving Craig Price, whom you mentioned, but a few years after Rustic Canyon, the opportunity to do some major work at Soul Park, another municipal facility, popped up. So could you take me through how you got involved in this project and then what the scope of it was? 
Yeah, that was uh, Mother Nature um, basically brought us to Seoul Park. It was, I can't remember exactly the year, it was 06 or 07, where it was very heavy El Nino winter, and basically the golf course was just ravaged. I mean, the, there's a dry wash that runs through it, and it, it flooded, tore all the bridges out that go across it, tore a bunch of the greens apart. And at this point in time, Craig had taken over the lease, and so it became a an emergency, hey, we've got to get this fixed. Because right now, instead of 18 holes, we have, I think there were maybe about 11 that were playable. So, and again, here, Ventura County, a little bit to the rescue, and the Army Corps of Engineers, they passed an emergency ordinance that allowed for these areas to be reclaimed. So we were able to go back into what would have been untouchable from a dry wash standpoint and go and rebuild these golf holes, put them back together, and in the process of doing so, we were asked to kind of give our thoughts as to how we could improve the design, how could we could make it more playable, more interesting. Once again, Jeff was part of our team up there, and once again, we kind of looked at the George Thomas playbook and tried to figure out how can we do things along those lines that would maximize the potential of Seoul Park, which Seoul Park setting is just beautiful. You're tucked right up against the mountains. You've got the, a much broader, wider, Barranca running through the middle of it as opposed to the one at Rustic Canyon, which was a little bit narrower. And so there it was an opportunity to play more along, flank along the side of it, go across it, but then start to introduce more bunkering, new green complexes. So it started off as a, let's put this place back together. And as the momentum built, it became, okay, what can we do with the next hole, with the next hole? And I think Tracy and I, that was one of our favorite summers. Living in Ojai was nice i mean it was really it was a special place and we enjoyed the time that we got to spend there and, and and you know the evolution of that place now it's no longer in craig price is he's no longer the the leaseholder but i think it's one of those things where peep golfers will go to discover fun they'll go to discover a good vibe a good place to hang out they'll go to discover places where other golfers of similar mindset are you know, their skins games are, are legendary now where people are just showing up and driving from all over Southern California to go and play and participate. And they're hanging out after golf. And so it's become one of these really kind of sleepy golf courses that now has this wonderful undercurrent of serious golfers, serious architecture enthusiasts go up there and, and, and you get to play, you know, you know, a golf course that has interest and in architecture but it's municipal and it's you can play it for you know, it's very affordable it's become a hot spot right now soul park is the place to go if you're a golf enthusiast living anywhere in the vicinity basically people drive up from los angeles to play it and to be part of the men's club out there and the and the various events that they they hold and so it's, it, you know, and for the reason that it has really interesting architecture, I think that is what's driving it. So that's where Soul Park has gotten. I think it's worth being frank about what happened immediately after your work there. After you and Jim made the changes there, there was some pushback from various longtime constituents <laughs> in the Soul Park community. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, thanks. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give you a tough one here and there, right? No, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, you have players. And I think that's one of the most difficult things to try to figure out how to get right when it comes to municipal golf 
is there are people who are part of the, the landscape who love where they play. And you don't want them to feel like they're just pushed aside. You know, and all of a sudden now all the cool kids are showing up and the food trucks are showing up and the beer is fine. And it's just, wait a second, what about me? I'm now, I don't enjoy this place anymore. And I think there was honestly a little bit of a pushback as it related to centerline bunkering. Um, you know, what do you mean there's a bunker in the middle of a hole? How, you know, that's, I hit it perfect. It's right where it was supposed to go. So I think there was. And there was... Um, a little bit of it, some, in some ways, it was easy for management to cave versus fight for it because they were wanting income and they were wanting the, basically all the revenue and the people to show up. And if you all of a sudden you're getting a, a group of people who are not happy about it, you know, they weren't thinking about all the people who were happy. So it became a bit of a battle and it really was unfortunate how that all shook out. But I think that's ultimately what led to the current management group there, and, and they've embraced it. In fact, they've asked us to come back in and restore some of the things that were taken out after the, the, the renovation of the golf course. But it's, it, it really is an important part. I mean, I think we're going to talk a little bit about Maggie Hathaway later on in Los Angeles, but it was something that also happened at Swanee. I don't want to keep bringing that up, but you know, when you, when you go back someplace, there's a bit of nostalgia that you want to have for it. You want it to be recognizable. You want it to be the place that I love, fell in love with. And when that's changed, people take it in very different ways. And so I think that's something, you know, we're going to obviously talk a lot with, with the National Links Trust about how do we retain play? How do we keep people there who have supported it for a long period of time, yet introduce new people to it without dispossessing the people who've, who've come to love it? Well, how do you do that? Because you are really good at this stuff. I know this from talking to memberships where you've worked. You can negotiate these situations quite well. Is there a similar approach or set of tactics that you bring to speaking with, conversing with the people who play a public golf course where, where you're going to make some big changes? Yeah, I think a lot of it is listening early on is listening to the people who are involved in either taking over management or who, are, who have played there for a long period of time and get their, their sense. You know, we're going to talk about the park. Well, the park was closed, so it was kind of hard for, you know, there's only one way to make it better was to get it reopened no matter what we did to it. And I think same thing with Rock Creek. You know, it's had fallen so far downhill that I don't can't imagine there are many people that are, you know, adamantly defending the, the old fifth hole. So... Ultimately, what it comes down to, and this is going to sound fairly simplistic, but it's the truth, it's maintenance. If you put a better maintained product out there, you're going to win a lot of people back. Whether they like the design or not, they can't argue with the fact that, hey, greens are better than they've ever been, the fairways are mowed, the bunkers are raked, there's all this sort of good things that are happening to the golf course, and they can put up with a little bit of changes or maybe significant changes as long as uh, actually, there's two things. As long as the golf course is maintained and as long as you don't charge them more money for that. And I'm trying not, I'm not trying to be funny. It's true. I mean, people want, they don't want to have a public facility that they've supported and been involved with for a long time. And all of a sudden we've tripled the greens fees and now they're economically moved on versus just moved on because they don't like the product. Yeah, absolutely. That's a those are the two big concerns, right, that you hear about from golfers is the conditions and the green fee, and both are completely understandable. When it comes to some of the architectural moves that 
we as architecture nerds love having a wide fairway that you put a bunker right in the middle of in order to create some interesting possibilities for play and angles and some freedom of choice off the tee. When you talk about it that way, it sounds great. When you're somebody who's played a course for years and you hit your drive in the middle of the fairway and it ends up in a bunker where you have to kind of splash out and then keep playing the hole, it might hit you a little bit differently. And so, you know, after that experience at Soul Park, where some of the centerline hazards were modified or moved in or made more conventional in some ways, what were some of the things that you thought about or that you did in the future to help people understand what you were doing architecturally when it came to things like, you know, wild greens or centerline hazards? How do you help people understand what you're doing without seeming condescending about it? Yeah, I, th I think there are several ways to communicate. I mean, with social media now, there's a lot of, you know, forums. You know, we don't necessarily have like forums where there are a bunch of people who play the golf course and we sit down and we talk about what we've done. But a lot of the places have asked us to narrate hole by hole flyovers or talk about different things or different angles or aspects of what we were trying to do. And the other thing that, that I've just been thinking about as we're sitting here is it's, this is not dissimilar from when you restore a private club. Right, you've got all these members who are used to playing things a certain way, and all of a sudden you put it back to what Donald Ross had, and Donald Ross had a bunker in the middle of the fairway, and they're like, wait, I don't like that. So it's not, it like crosses all the spectrums as far as architecture is concerned. But I think it's really more communication through social media, um, trying to just put forward the best possible plan, and, and hopefully people will embrace it and understand it. All right, let's talk about some more recent happenings. Uh, your most recent completed municipal design is the park in West Palm, which we heard a little bit about during the symposium today. So this was an ambitious project. If you compare this to Rustic Canyon or Soul Park, it exists on an entirely different scale. It took a hefty amount of capital to carry out, and the transformation obviously is pretty stunning. So first of all, what was the funding structure? behind this project? Private donations. I mean, I think this is, is ultimately, and again, West Palm Beach is a different universe. It's, it's different, you know, the, the, the money that was available there is not available everywhere around, and we understand that. But I think it is the perfect public-private model that can be successful as we move around the country and trying to restore, renovate, improve public golf courses. It's basically a model where individuals were asked to contribute. There was a vision that was put forward. It was centered around the renovation, restoration of this golf course that was beloved. It was an old Dick Wilson golf course that had been modified and had fallen out of favor. But it was a willing participant in the city of West Palm Beach. The mayor, the city council were all 100% behind this. So you had the public side pulling hard for this. Then you had a group led by Seth Waugh and Dan Stanton, Dirk Ziff, Tommy Frankel, working hard to go through the community down there and find golf-loving people who had the wherewithal to contribute to it. And not only did they com contribute enough to build the golf course, the clubhouse, all the teaching facilities, but also to have an endowment that would ultimately you know, fund future maintenance or future golf programs. But I think really the most important part of it is also the vehicle it provides for the path at the park, which I know Dave spoke about today. 
what we've done, hopefully we've played our role in creating a facility that people are interested in and that want to come and play and that, you know, will hold golf architecture geeks. Will, and, and, but also the, the, the $60 around golfers from West Palm Beach are going to go out there. And one of the crazy things about it is they've, we, we fought long and hard. Those of you who know me well know I'm a huge advocate for walking golf. Um, you know, obviously if you have a physical ailment, you can't walk hundred percent. You should take a cart, but if you're able, you should be able to walk. And we got it through where there were going to be walking times only up until noon and then caddy required times. And we thought for sure that the city of West Palm beach people were not going to do that. They've done it. They've booked all those tea times. They love it. So it's also been a vehicle to somewhat talk about what we think golf should be and how it should be presented and that the you know the walking game golf should be played at three miles an hour not 20 and that you know you see you talk you you have social interaction with everybody else so i think within the the golf there are things some things we've accomplished but the path is ultimately going to be the most successful thing that comes out of it and the opportunity to bring children in to have them be in a safe, nurturing environment, to be taken care of after school, to be taught, to utilize the game of golf as part of the teaching. You know, art classes can center on painting golf holes. Um, math classes can talk about you know, math as it relates to golf. And then to actually bring them into the game of golf and teach them about golf, but teach it in a fun and welcoming. You know, a lot of us know that golf is sometimes not the most welcoming sport and there are barriers to entry and there are barriers to, you know, to feeling good about going out on a golf course. I think this will drop all of those barriers. And so, like I said, while we're proud of our contribution on the golf end of things, I think the path is going to be ultimately the most significant and important thing that comes out of this. So to have the opportunity to have a, an invested public partner, a willing and able private piece that puts the money forward and does it in a way that's you know caring and then to have created the educational aspect of it so it's not only giving to the golf community it's giving to the community at large it checks all of those boxes and i really feel strongly it's going to be a, an incredibly successful model what are the fundamentals from an architecture perspective of making a golf course walkable well uh, close tee and green proximity, I think, is a good start. You know, getting you basically moving off of the green right onto the next tee. I think we, you know, one of the things we all love about these great old golf courses, and the you know the three here, embrace that is that golf was originally designed to be a compact landscape, right? You weren't having to cross roads or cross through housing developments to get to the next golf hole. You were basically moving through a landscape in a way that made a lot of sense, and that did so in a way that was walkable. And so I think green and tea proximity, I think monitoring elevation change. I mean, when you've got a site like the park, it's 30 feet of elevation change. It's pretty easy to walk. Uh, it's not that, not that difficult, but I think it's managing those the ups and downs. But I think it's, it's, it's understanding just the flow of the way the game is played. And then, you know, opportunities, like if you've got a big dip that you're playing over, provide an opportunity to walk on the high side of it. You know, maybe that's not the straight line, but at least you can kind of wander your way around where you're not having to tackle some of the more abrupt topography out there. I think that's an important thing for some municipal facilities to consider. Obviously, cart golf is enormously common in America, and, and that includes municipal golf courses. But I think we all know that if a lot of people choose to walk, the golf course does reap some benefits 
right? Yeah, it, it's it's good for maintenance. It's obviously good from an exercise standpoint. I think you know one of the things that we're also very proud about there, and in most places, the the push cart or the pull cart, however you want to. I mean that that has had a stigma in American golf for so long, but it's easy. I mean it's the easiest way if you don't want to put it, throw it over your back, to go ahead and push and walk work around the golf course. And I think that seeing American golf embracing that and saying, yeah, go ahead and take that. It makes your walk so much easier will lead more people to walking. What was the thinking behind the design at the park? Now, I haven't been there. I've looked at a lot of pictures. And to me, it looks like some incredibly bold architecture happening out there. No holds barred. This is a Gil Hans golf course. So what were some of the discussions that you had with your partner, Jim Wagner? What was the theory behind the design here? I think it was take advantage of some of the better topography in South Florida. I mean, that the 30 feet doesn't sound like much, but in South Florida, that's a lot. And so we were able to look at those ridges, how we could maximize some of those spaces. And Dirk Ziff, who I mentioned earlier, is he was a design partner with us. In fact, he was very, very responsible for the, the routing of the golf course, uh, which was also another really fun part of it. But I think it was it gets back to that mentality I talked about earlier on that we don't want to dumb down golf courses because they're public. We want to give people opportunities to work their way around it. I, I still think that golf, the playing of the game of golf is, and I know this was used somewhere else and I don't want to draw attention, but it's aspirational when you play the game. You want to get better. You want to have challenges. You want to be able to, you know, if, if it, all it was was straight, turf mode from green to tee would be bowling, right? It wouldn't be interesting. And I think that average golfers get as much joy and satisfaction out of overcoming obstacles and hazards in a way that gives them an opportunity. I think from that aspirational aspect, if you are within, you're able to understand the limits of your game and we give you avenues to play within those limits, then that's great. If you choose to go outside those limits or test your limits and push it to a place where now you're flirting with bunkers or you're flirting with different angles, then that's a learning thing about architecture is, well, I don't want to go over there again. So you kind of start the process. I just remember Tom Doak talking about the 13th hole. Now we're really going to get geeky. You know, the golf architecture nerds get excited about this. The 13th hole at, at North Berwick where there's just that one little bunker out there sitting by itself. And he said, you know, you get close to it. Now you can play your second shot along the wall. And golfers always start off going over here, closer, closer, closer. Then they get in it. Then they go back to over here. And then they kind of slowly but surely. It's that sort of opportunity to learn as you're playing a golf course that there's something going on out here. There's something to think about. It's not just hit it wherever you want. There are things in the way. You know, and, and I think beginning golfers, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is if you get in a deep bunker, most golfers, will, they'll figure it out after. If they take two or three, they'll just pick it up and they'll, they'll go ahead and move on. But it gives them at least an understanding of what that is. If every single bunker was two feet deep and it became, then there'd be no differentiation. And there wouldn't be an understanding of, okay, yeah, there are penalties. There are different ways to go through this. And with putting, on some of the greens, I think most golfers are comfortable with a putter in their hands, so they don't necessarily mind having to play up and over, around, or through. Some people actually think that's kind of kind of fun, but we wouldn't do it just to do it. Hopefully, it is meaningful. The topography is in relationship with the golf hole. It comes before it. 
it seems like what a lot of you, uh, a lot of what you're talking about here is how to make a golf course playable for a broad population of golfers, but still challenging for excellent golfers, which has been something that pretty much every architect in the history of golf has claimed to be able to do. This is tough for your expert player, but it's still easy enough for the hacker that they won't get totally frustrated. But it seems like what you're talking about is a little more specific here. How do you carry out architecturally a golf course that is truly challenging and interesting for a scratch player, but can be perfectly playable for any level? Is it wide fairways? Is it hazards down the, you know, uh, down a particular line of the hole? What kinds of greens are we talking about? How does that play out architecturally? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, what Jim and I talk a lot about is the level of precision, right? The level of precision required to play, literally just go play golf, should be fairly low. You should be able to hit your ball, find it, hit it again, find it, et cetera. And then the level of precision required to score, like to play the course well, should be high. And we see that every year at Augusta National, right? I mean, the level of precision required to play there, if you're fortunate enough to play there, is not that high. I mean, wide fairways, but if you want to score, you've got to be on the proper side of the fairway. You've got to have the proper angle into the green, and then the, you know, they're tilted, and, or they're blind shots, and you're trying to figure out where to hit it. So the level of precision required to score is high. Then you take that to the greens, and if you're trying to hit you know, you got to hit to the proper quarter of the green to score at Augusta National. But, you know, if you're just playing, you're going to three-putt, and it's okay. And I think that's one of the things that we were very fortunate that, you know, Tiger has been a, a, a big booster for the park. And he was there on opening day, and he hit the opening tee shot. And we were chatting beforehand, and he said something that I'd never heard before, which he said, yeah, this is a one-ball golf course. And I'm thinking, what do you mean? He said, well, yeah, anybody who plays here, it's one ball. You're not going to lose a golf ball. You're really going to be able to start and finish. And I'm thinking, well, most golf courses are one ball course for Tiger. But the thought process was, yeah, actually, that's true. The more you went around it, you'd really have to work hard to lose a golf ball at the park. And so I think that also lends itself to the level of playing a golf course and the level of enjoyment. If you're constantly searching and looking for golf balls, you've lost a half a dozen golf balls at you know, that's just not fun. You're not Mark Parsonen, who we co-designed uh, Castle Stewart with, who was one of the smartest guys I've ever been around and just an amazing, thoughtful person about golf talked about. And Jim and I constantly remember this. And we talk about is keep the golfer hopeful and engaged. Like if you can keep a golfer hopeful that they're thinking, OK, I can actually hit this shot or there's a place where I can go that I know I can hit a shot with my next shot then they're engaged in, in the, the match, they're engaged in the playing of the golf course, they're engaged. But if they've, their ball's in their pocket and they're just walking down the fifth hole in a row that they've lost a golf ball, they're no longer hopeful and they're no longer engaged and you've lost them. So you have to create playing grounds that give you the opportunity to keep the average golfer hopeful and engaged. And they also talked about the, the third shot for an average golfer, right? Even tour players hit 50, 60% of greens in regulation. You know, what does that third shot look like? How is it, is the golfer again, hopeful and engaged? Are they despondent? How do they, or how are they looking? Because they're most likely not going to hit the green in two. So what kind of recovery options do you give them? And then within those recovery options, if there's creativity, if there's different ways to play it, again, where they're hopeful in the outcome and they don't pull it off, 
there's still, okay, I, I messed up. I didn't hit a good shot. But if you put a golfer in a position where they have no hope of hitting a good shot, then it becomes, well, this architect sucks and this is a bad golf hole. And so you want to keep them, keep them moving along. And I think that that translates not only to public municipal golf, but it also translates to private golf. Hopeful and engaged, even if it's foolish hope. Yeah. Even if they're, <laughs> yeah. even if they shouldn't be that hopeful. That is true. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some future projects of yours or, or ongoing developing projects, ones that haven't been finished. One is the National Link, Links Trust's first major improvement project, which is going to take place at Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. So first of all, th this course has an extensive and very interesting history. What is that history and, and how is it going to factor into some of your work there? Yeah, so it's, it's a William Flynn golf course, um, originally nine holes by Flynn, and then he came back and added 18 and then it was changed to the military road, run, went through and took some of the golf holes away. So it's been modified ever since. It was William Gordon who was one of Flynn's associates. So at least they kept it a little bit in the family to try to try and emulate Flynn's style. And then over a period of time, I mean, William Flynn, obviously, I, we live in Philadelphia having spent my adult life in Philadelphia. So many great Flynn golf courses around there, Huntington Valley, Rolling Green. Uh, Philly Country Club, on and on. So when Will called us and said, hey, we've actually got a Flynn golf course in a public setting, it was like, that was exciting, number one, to think, okay, great, we'd, we'd love to work on a Flynn golf course. We'd love to have the opportunity to do it in a public setting. Tell us more. And so we came out, I think it was three years ago, four years ago, it was before COVID. Um, walked the site and thought it was really interesting uh, worked with Will and Mike McCartan about how you would route this, what you would do, what ultimately would yield the best result for Rock Creek's golf course. And given how far downhill it had gone and, and some of the holes had been abandoned, it became important to understand that the best way to utilize Rock Creek to grow the game of golf, to make affordable golf accessible, but then to also hopefully give the opportunity to to create some revenue that would allow these other projects to go forward might not be necessarily a pure William Flynn restoration because it couldn't happen, number one, because the holes were gone. Um, but what would be the best use for this? And so we all worked together and came up with nine holes, which aren't exact replicas of Flynn's, but all the green sites are Flynn green sites. Seven of the nine greens are Flynn greens, even though degraded, but to the point where we could at least uh, bring them back, create a nine hole par three course which I think is an amazing amenity for kids. And again, that sort of introduction is one of the things we have at the park. And then also a Himalayas putting green and a full-scale driving range. So you've basically one-stop shopping. You've got opportunity, if you're just learning the game, you can putt and have fun. You can play on the par three. You've got a, a real driving range where you can come and work on your game and learn. And then you have a serious golf course of nine holes. And so we went out there today and walked around and the ground is better than I remembered. I mean, it's hilly, it's got kind of uh, that old school, there might be some blind shots, there are gonna be some fairways where you're gonna have to hit your ball to the left side and let it run all the way across to the right side to stay in the fairway. But I think that character and interest in golf is really part of that kind of local knowledge. And, and I think the best golf courses reward thoughtful study, they reward local knowledge, they reward multiple plays to say, hey, I'm gonna play this hole, I'm gonna play it differently next time. But you get excited about learning those things versus just 
it's the same thing every time you play it. And I think the topography at Rock Creek gives us the opportunity to have a golf course that's going to play in, in any number of ways, given whether it's wet, whether it's firm, whether you know it's spring or summer or fall. And so I think that's really exciting. So all those things combined, uh, plus you know the the passion we see in the in National Links Trust and trying to do the right thing for the game made it easy for Jim and I to say yes. We've seen a few of this type of project cropping up lately, and it's pretty exciting. It's also an interesting idea to work out as I'm sure a golf course restoration specialist or just as somebody who really loves the history of golf courses and is devoted to trying to bring bring, bring back the great work of the greatest architects. And so I'm curious how you figure out a project like Rock Creek where it's clear that the best solution for the facility is to move away from what the golf course was while at the same time respecting what the golf course was. How do you think that through? If all 18 holes were still in place and they were available, I don't think National Links Trust would have asked us to change it anyway. So, I, I, But the way the golf course has evolved or devolved um, made it quite easy to make that decision. And, and ultimately... I think we're going to be able to present nine really good holes of William Flynn golf. We'll be able to educate golfers who William Flynn was. They'll obviously be able to see his work. And I think that's one of the cooler things, too, is that back in the day, you had the William Flynn's, you had the Donald Rosses, you had the best architects of the time doing some of their best work on public golf courses. It wasn't always the private club. It was basically, hey, this golf course is worthy of our effort and our attention, and they gave it to it. And I think that's something that really drew Jim and I to this project as well, to think if on certain level our restoration or, or renovation of those Flynn holes creates a spark or an interest in somebody else as to what architecture is or what William Flint, who he was or what he meant to, then that's, that's a win. That's a great outcome for us. So I think having that opportunity and focusing on those nine holes versus worrying about the thought that, well, you know, we're not doing a true restoration. I think for the benefits that it's going to yield, that was, a, it was an easy decision. And there's going to be a short course element to this as well. Yep. There is. Could you talk a little bit about designing short courses? You've yeah, done a couple done of them. Done a few of them. Um, <laughs> and they seem like they're a lot of fun to design. Are they as fun to design as it looks like? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's liberating, right? You're not worried about, uh, you know, somebody, their you know, shot values. You know, somebody going, oh, well, you know, the shot value on that par four was really not good because he didn't hit it here or the architect asked me to do this. No, it's just put it on a peg and hit it and play. And it's, so it's predicated on fun. And it's that innocence and liberation, I think, that comes with that. It's the opportunity to just focus not only on how do we, you know, create the difficult test for the best golfers and how do we create an easier test? But I think the magic sauce is if you can create something that allows the beginner to go out there and have a great experience the first time they've put a golf club in their hands and yet still get a scratch golfer and his or her buddies out there going, okay, yeah, watch this. This is a fun shot and you got to hit it just right in order to, you know, to stick it or to get it to play. That's where the magic sauce is. And hopefully... That translates. I think that's one of the things we did well at the cradle um, was the opportunity to create something that's across the entire spectrum of golf. People 
are intrigued, interested in playing that. And I think if we can do the same thing out here, that'll be all equally successful. Speaking of little courses, there's one in the LA area called Maggie Hathaway that you have been brought on to do something with. I actually don't know a lot of details about this project. And so I'm really curious to hear you talk about it. What is the vision for it? Yeah, so Maggie Hathaway um, was a civil rights activist in Los Angeles. She was an African-American actress in the 60s and 70s and loved golf and used golf as a, as a really nice platform to advance her causes. And so from that standpoint, the city named this little nine-hole golf course in South Central L.A. after her. And it is a very rudimentary nine-hole course. And this is the conversation we were having earlier where we could have gone in and blown it up and started over again. But it became apparent to us listening to the people in the community who've utilized this and who value it and love it that they didn't want that. They wanted the routing to be the same. They wanted to step on a tee and see the hole the way they've seen it. Maybe the green's a little bit bigger because I swear the greens are about the size of this stage. Uh, maybe the main, well, not maybe, the maintenance is better. There's a little more interest. There's actually grass on the tees. And to, but to make this place better, but keep it familiar. And so that was really the conversation we had there. And so we've got some very, I think, some pretty good ideas on how we can do that, improve the overall facility, yet still make it so that that neighborhood can still utilize it and cherish it as, an, as a vital part of their neighborhood. So uh, the USGA, Los Angeles Country Club, is part of the outreach from the U.S. Open, decided to partner up, and they've gotten pretty decent uh, re response on the funding to do this. We've donated our time as we've done at all these projects and you know game of golf has been so good to us and our family and and so it's nice to be able to give back in, in different ways to do that and so when we were asked to be involved there we thought again it's it's an easy one to put your hand up and say yes i want to do this when it comes to a project like this where you're asked to keep in place a lot of what the golf course has been but improve it a little bit what are some of the things that you look at, the specific things that can be done on a golf course that are maybe low cost or low impact that maintain the character of the course but improve the quality of the golf as much as possible? Ground game. I mean, we try to really put the ground game into play and give people options and ways to bounce balls in. And, you know, a lot of short grass are off of the tee. So if you top it, your ball's not stuck in the rough. It's kind of running and bounding and uh, giving people the opportunity. And, and I'm not saying every single hump or hollow around the green has got to kick balls to the green, but that there are some that do that. And if you're paying attention, you can hit a ball here and it's going to go and feed that way. So, again, the level of precision if you've hit a scruffy shot, it may have something that'll help you and bring it back into play. But if you're playing and you're a good player and you're just like, hey, this is going to be fun, I'm going to aim at that little knob and watch it take a slope and go sideways, those are things that I think really add a tremendous amount to the variety, the playability, is just let people, I mean, I'm sure most people in this room love links golf. You know, the best golf is when the ball hits the ground. That's when it really starts. It's not when the ball's in the air. It's when it hits the ground give people the opportunities to put the ball on the ground and let it do something, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, but just there's that opportunity. So we've reviewed about 20 years of municipal golf projects here. There were a couple in the early and mid-2000s, and now you've really started to take on more municipal golf projects at this point in your career. So I wonder if there's 
if there are any reflections that you have on how the municipal golf project world has changed over the past 20 years and whether there's anything that excites you about what's happening in the space right now. Well, I think it's not only in the municipal golf space, but it's society, it's, it's social media, right? It's the opportunity to get, you know, hopefully nobody's taping this in here, but all of a sudden, you know, later an hour from now, somebody's like, Hey, Gil Hans just said this and blah, blah, blah. There it is. And I think it's the opportunity to get the message out amongst like-minded golfers to say, hey, you need to go check out Soul Park. Hey, you need to go check out East Potomac. You need to be at these places. Really cool stuff is happening. And so I think within the golf community, there's a, a much larger knowledge base than there would have been when Rustic Canyon was built. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, the word gets out. I don't know that it's necessarily people care more now. I think it's cooler now. You know, it's kind of, there's, there's a cool buzz and a vibe to this. And I think some of the things that you guys are doing, some of the stuff that John Ashworth did at Goat Hill, stuff that Tom Coyne's doing up at Sullivan County. I mean, there's a buzz about these facilities and the buzz will go away if it's not real or it's not good, but the buzz stays at places like that. And I think that's a good thing that gets people energized and excited and introduced to places where they might've never gone before. So I think that just that information, that technology from a municipal standpoint has been a very valuable tool. Golf construction is really starting to gain some momentum. And I think that's probably an understatement, especially when it comes to your firm's work. You have a lot of projects going on, a lot of firms that established themselves after the turn of the century as design, build, one project at a time kinds of firms are now taking on a full plate of projects. And so, you know, as somebody who is committed to the craftsmanship that goes into a golf course, whether it's a municipal course or a historic country club, how do you handle this increased workload and still maintain the quality that was your reason for getting into the business in the first yeah, place. It's a tough one. Somebody the other day said that I must be cloned. There must be three of me. And they said, you know, you're always here, there, and everywhere. And so the only other person that I wonder if there's three of is Michael Strahan. And I thought that was kind of an interesting take on it. Um, is that the first time you've been compared to Michael Strahan? Yes, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. it is. But it, um, it's tough. I mean, it really is the dilemma that we face. Um, you know, I know we're busy and, and, we jokingly say we, we say yes to everything or we're doing every golf course in the universe when the truth is, and I'm not trying to boast, I mean, we say no to 99% of the stuff that comes our way, but there's enough great stuff out there that it's hard to say no to. And you want to do these projects. You want to work on the, you know, the, the Rock Creeks. You want to work on the, the park. You want to work on Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia, our hometown, which is one we haven't talked about. So you want to be able to, no, it's okay. Um, we want to be able to, to say yes to these things, but we still need to be able to work on other, other projects and keep our team going. And I think that was one of the, I first met Ben Crenshaw in 1988 and we talked and he said, you know, what's the hardest thing about becoming a golf course architect? And he said, staying small. And I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say. And then, you know, as the years went on, we would hear more from people saying, well, you'll never turn down a fee. You're, you're going to take everything. There's no way you can say no to a 500,000 or a million or two million, whatever the fee structure is. And, and we've been successful at that, but it's hard. 
I always thought, nah, it's going to be easy. We'll be able to just say no. But you look at things and then you build a team, you know, and, and obviously Jim Wagner has been beside my, by my side for 27 years now, 28 years, which is crazy to think. And, and I've, I've said this now, you know, you used to always get the question, who's the most influential person for you design-wise? And I say living or dead, and you say living. And it was always Bill Core, which is, is the truth. Bill is, is an amazing friend, but he's, he's the most amazing golf architect. But the person who's had the biggest influence on my career and my design beliefs is Jim Wagner, without a doubt. He's been standing right next to me for 28 years, and it took me maybe 20 to figure that out, but, which is my fault. Um, but so Jim is trusted. So, you know, people say, how, how often are you guys together? And I said, rarely. Maybe that's why we've been together for 28 years. <laughs> um, because, you know, I'll go into a project, and I'll be there, and then I'll leave, and then Jim will come in the next day or the next week because there's no – you know, occasionally we'll be there together because we need to, to work through some certain things and we'll work on routings together. But I think then we've built a team of cavemen. And so these guys are all incredibly talented and, and they've been with us. Some, you know, Neil Cameron's been with us for 18 years. So you, you start to have these guys. And, you, and one of the things that Bill and Ben are so good about is they take work to keep their guys busy. They want to make sure that those guys aren't sitting at home. Now, obviously, they want to make sure they're going to build great golf courses, but you start to then all of a sudden build this responsibility of not only am I responsible for my professional career, um, Jim and I are responsible for his career, and Ben and Kevin, and then we're responsible for eight shapers who are out there, and so you start to go, how do we keep this thing going but not have it spiral out of control that you lose your fingerprints? And the other part of it, too, is just it's it takes a commitment on Jim and I's part to travel. I mean, we're on the road all the time. And thankfully, Tracy has decided that she, this nomadic lifestyle works for her as well. And we rent houses and home is where it is. And somebody asked me, how many nights have you slept in your own bed in, in PA this year? And I, I think it's like 21. And so it's, it's a commitment to saying, okay, that's important to us to make sure that we continue to do these things. And there are sacrifices. And don't get me wrong, don't, don't play any fiddles or violins for me. I'm incredibly fortunate and lucky to get to do what I do at the places we get to do it. But you're still committed. I had, I won't mention his name, but it was one of the most touching things to me. It was a, a figure in golf who a lot of people in this room would know. He said, you know, I just want to let you know that I have so much respect for the fact that you are where you are in this profession but you still do the work. And that just, that resonated that we're not mailing it in. Am I on site as much as I was at Rustic Canyon? No. That's 100% the evolution of where we've gone. But I still get in a bulldozer most days. I still have a shovel and rake in my hands on most days. And that's just part of what we do it. And, and so I think that that's, you just have to have that commitment to what you're doing. I just turned 60 this summer. I don't know how long my back and my, my bones are going to take care of this. But as long as I can physically keep doing it, that's the way we're going to do it. All right. That wraps up our evening with Gil Hans. Thank you so much to Gil. Thank you. Thanks, Garrett. Enjoyed it. episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rucius. Thank you, Matt. 
So you may have noticed that this was episode 500 of the Friday Golf Podcast. Now, we're not exactly sure if it's actually episode 500. The very first episode of this podcast is sort of lost to history. We don't know where it is. <laughs> and we're not sure if we counted correctly on our way to 500. Obviously, we're, we're not really big into anniversaries here. But I thought it was as good an opportunity as any to just thank everyone who listens to this podcast for doing that, for sticking with us, for having fun with us, for you know developing these inside jokes about golf over the course of months and years. It really has been so, so fun. So thank you, thank you, and we hope you'll be back with us for our next episode.